Well, it is a, a joy to be to come into the the the, the season of Advent. It's um, again one of my favorite times of the season when I can think about it, and I know I can think about it all the time, but it's kind of there in front of your face, and it's kind of hard to miss it. But God's incarnation to the world, and what a uh, a marvelous mystery and majesty that it is to consider. And um, this year we have the, the, the special privilege that we've been, over the course of this past year, we've been look, focusing on the Christ, and we've been considering the, the, um, the shadow of Christ in the beginning of the year, and then the life of Christ throughout the middle of the year, um, today we actually begin the, the third segment of the Focusing on the Christ series, and that is the return of Christ. And so, to me, what a special blend it is to go along with the, the, the first advent of Christ to be looking at the second advent of Christ. And so, instead of actually having a separate advent reflection, which in years past what we've done is we have an advent reflection and we might sing some songs or whatever, we're actually going to have the advent reflection being the first part of the message, if that makes sense, because it kind of goes together. We have the... The, the coming of Christ and the return of Christ. And um, so as we, we look at that, today we want to begin looking at the prophecies of his coming. And in looking at his coming, second coming, but first, quickly, looking at the prophecies of his, of his first coming. And um, the, in his first coming, if on your sermon note sheet, you've got all these, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it for the sake of time, but there are numerous prophecies in God's Word. There are over 300 prophecies regarding Christ coming to the earth. Okay, And there are then numerous of them, at least a dozen, and we're only going to look at 11, that refer to His birth. But if you just start considering the, um, His coming in, in the, the miracle of it, um, in the statistically uh, phenomenal um, magnitude of it, it's an amazing thing. First of all, what do we know about Christ's coming? Genesis chapter 3, right? He was going to be the seed of a, a woman. Okay? That is actually part of the, the, the statement of the curse to the, to the serpent. Because there was going to be enmity between his seed and, and her seed. He would, bru- he would bruise the heel of her seed, but he would what? Crush his head, bruise his head. Okay? And so, so after that, we know that, first of all, he's born of a seed of a woman. But secondly, and Tying into this, and I know this comes way later in, in, the, in the Old Testament, but bringing it in with that thought process, it wouldn't just be a woman, but it would be a what? Virgin. A virgin. Now, that kind of limits it a whole lot, doesn't it? I mean, I don't know many people that have ever been born by a virgin, except for one, okay? And so, but we know from Isaiah, um, chapter 7, verse 14, that the Messiah would be born of a, of a virgin, okay? And we know from the book of Matthew... And Luke, that that was very um, definitive, were the angels coming to Mary, who was a virgin before she knew a man. He would be born in the lineage of, of Abraham. So if you get eradicate number two for a moment and just get rid of it, and I know it's a big deal because it is a big deal for me. I've heard of a pastor years ago of a big church here in town who said that the virgin birth was not a big deal. I think it's a big deal because if it's not a virgin birth, he's not a, a sinless person, which means he can't be the perfect sacrifice. Do you understand? But even if we just get rid of that for a moment and just consider it again statistically, the, the magnitude of, of this individual coming, fulfilling these things, he would not only be born of a woman, which everybody is, but he would be of the lineage of, of Abraham. Now that kind of what? Limits it a little bit more. And then we know, continuing on in the book of Genesis, not only would he be of the line of Abraham, but he would be the line of Isaac. Okay, And so we have one who would be now coming through Isaac, and we see that 
you have the potential for it to be Ishmael as well, because Ishmael was actually the firstborn son of Abraham, yes? But he was not the firstborn son of promise or Sarah, because God said that specifically the seed of Abraham would be that which comes through Sarah and not through Hagar, okay? And so it was Isaac. And then after Isaac, we have Jacob. Now, again, Isaac and Rebekah, they have two sons, as we talked about this in Sunday school, okay? And you missed it if you weren't here in Sunday school. But we see that God says, Jacob he loved and Esau he he hated. So God said that the, the, the older would serve the younger, that he was choosing Jacob, that it was in Jacob that the blessing would continue on. Well, from Jacob, when Jacob was on his deathbed, he gave a blessing to each of his um, 12 sons, and he stated that to Judah, that it would be Judah that the scepter would pass through, and that, um, and that it would be the seed of Judah that would reign with a rod of iron. And so we see that the, this Messianic uh, person who would be coming later would be of the line of Judah. Then we see that it continues on through the line of Jesse. Now you say, I thought it was going to go David. Well, David... But specifically, it was going to be of the seed of Jesse. Many times we miss that. But in the book of Isaiah, very clearly, it talks about the seed of Jesse. It talks about the, the stump of Jesse. And so that's, that's David. But first, prophetically, it was going to come through Jesse. And then he's going to come via David, okay, which becomes even more narrowed down. But then we get into these other things that are outside the lineage. And it says that the Messiah would be born in the city of Bethlehem the city of David, but there's the debates over where they would call the city of David, would have been Jerusalem, or where they would call Bethlehem, and so God is definitive, it's going to be in the city of Bethlehem, because it says, oh, Bethlehem of Everta, you know, though you are small, yet you will be what? You'll be great, okay? And so it would be in Bethlehem that this child would be born. Also, we're told in the Psalms that this child would be presented gifts, okay? And that um, even from, from Sheba and stuff like that, from the east, and so um, it says that there would be some from the west, some from the east, and so there are people who, who when they look at these kings or magi, that they consider them as a, a grouping of representing the nations. But anyways, he would be presented gifts. And very uh, interestingly enough, when Jesus was born, the magi did come, and they did offer him what? Gifts. In fact, some of the gifts, very gifts that were mentioned there in the uh, prophecy regarding it. And then Messiah ultimately would be sought to be killed. And so... Herod fulfilled that as well, um, in that he sought to kill all the, ch the mill children between zero and two years of age in order that he may kill the Messiah. Okay, and that was prophesied as well. Now that's all really kind of kind of cool when we consider that. Um, but there was a man named Peter Stoner who years ago, um, back in the in the forties, he was a um, he was a, you have some of the information about him on your in the back of your sermon note sheets. Okay, um, but he was a the professor of mathematics and, and, and statistics at the Pasadena City College, um, and he took his, his statistics class once to calculate the probability that any, any one man could fulfill just eight of the prophecies that, eight, that, that Christ fulfilled. And so these are the eight prophecies that he was going to look at. First of all, one of the ones from the birth, that he was going to be uh, born in the city of Bethlehem. Now, what he did was they sat there, and then they had a guy who worked in the library, so he went and he did a lot of the, the census studies and stuff. And they came back, and they said that during that, that, that time frame from here, from, from way back when the prophecies were given till now, that one in 280,000 people are born in Bethlehem. Now, that's a pretty generous um, 
statistic there, okay? It's pretty conservative. And you'll note that what they've tried to do was be extremely conservative in all the things. Because honestly, if I was going to do it, I wouldn't tell you that one in 280,000 people are born in, in Bethlehem. Okay? I would say it's the, the statistics is much greater than that. But they said 1 in 280,000, that's 2.8 times 10 to the 5th. And then they said Malachi 3.1, that, that this individual will be preceded by a messenger. And so they said then, so what's the probability that someone who may be born in Bethlehem would be preceded by a, by a messenger? And they said, well, maybe 1 in 10,000. And so he said, fine, 1 in 1,000. And so he, he, he made it more conservative. Again, bringing down a factor every time that they were doing that. Because think about it. How many people do you know of or heard of that actually had somebody, a herald going before them? Usually it's only, the only people that have heralds is what? Is a king. Not many kings. If you go back now from now all the way back to the, the days of David even, and calculate how many kings there have been on the earth, and then calculate the world's population, it really wouldn't be just one in a thousand. Does that make sense? But just taking one in a thousand as that, that number, then you come down to Zechariah 9, nine that the king would enter riding on a donkey. Okay? What's the probability that someone born in uh, Bethlehem who has a, has a messenger going before him might be coming into a city riding on a donkey? Or what is the probability that anybody living in the, in the world is going to enter a city riding on a donkey? Much less a king. That's exactly right. And so they said one in a hundred. You know that now you have a greater potential of, of having that happen. Maybe there's a one in a hundred people might be riding into a city on a donkey. Because you don't understand that here, but in other parts of the country or other parts of the world, that may be what? A little bit more prevalent, okay? So they said one in a hundred. That's t one to the ten to the second. Well, betrayed by Judas or betrayed by a friend. What is the probability of somebody being betrayed by their their friend. Now, I'm not just talking about just being a, a little betrayal, but we're talking about a major betrayal as unto what? Death. So they, again, conservatively, the class wanted to go one in 10,000. He said, fine, one in 1,000 is good. And so, so he, he, he factored it down a little before. Now that that person who, um, who was betraying, that the betrayer would receive, not only would receive 30 pieces of silver, but he would what? Oh wait, we're going to go to that one next. First of all, that he's going to receive thirty pieces of silver, and they say, "Well, one in the, you know, one in ten thousand again." He says, "Fine, one in a thousand. So he continues on with that thought process. Now they they go. Now what's the probability that someone who's betrayed their friend for money would do what? Go would go and take the money back? They say, "Well, man, this is just that. <laughs> this just never happens." And so, um, so they put one in a hundred thousand on that one. So it's ten to the fifth. Then Isaiah fifty-three that the one who was on trial, that this one who was going to be born in Bethlehem and da 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 would make no defense for himself when it came to trial. And they said, everybody wants to what? Defend themselves. They want to, I mean, that's just, you know, they, everybody understands that the, the base thing of, according to humanistic thought process, is to protect yourself, you know, self-preservation. So they're going to make some defense. And they said, they said, one in 10,000. Again, I think that's quite generous. I don't know if I would have gone um, so generous as that. Um, in Psalm 22, that this individual have their their hands and feet pierced, which means that, again, being crucified. Before crucifixion was ever even heard of, this prophecy was given out. And so they went and then they, they, they researched out then Roman crucifixion and the statistics on, as much as they could find out, a number of people that were tortured by crucifixion. And so they gave it a 1 in 10,000. Now, understand that these are statistics from all the way when the, the prophecies were given until the current day, which was in the 1940s. 
Okay? So they're, they're being very generous because they understand that from the 300 BC to 300 AD, you'd have a, a much greater prevalence of, of crucifixions, right? Because that's when the Roman Empire was, was really there in, in full force. But how many crucifixions have you heard of today? Not as many, right? I mean, it just doesn't happen. There's, you know, countries don't do that. So they're, they're being very generous, I think, in, on the conservative side of coming back that. Well, in statistics, does anybody know how you, you take individual statistics and put them together and then um, determine what the, the ultimate um, the statistics are going to be? Probability, with probability statistics, you multiply. That's exactly right. So you'd have to take 2 times 8 times 10 to the 5th, okay? Now, you need to understand that what he did as well was he took the 2.8, and I forgot to change it on my on my, my, my slide here, but they dumbed it down even more, and they said 1. So instead of saying 2.8, they said 1. So they said 1 times 10 to the 5th times 10 to the 3rd times 10 to the 2nd times 10 to the 3rd times 10 to the 3rd times 10 to the 5th. Anyways, you get it? You get 1 times, get rid of the 2.8, and put 1 times 10 to the 28th. That's 1 in 10 octillion. The odds, the odds of one person fulfilling all those things is one in ten octillion. Now, they said was oh, we got to get a new clicker or something. This is awful. Okay, but if you assume that there have been eighty-eight billion people in the world, okay, because you got to calculate that as well, and you got to divide that out in your statistics, okay, then that would be eight point eight times ten to the eleventh, ten to the tenth. But they rounded that up to one times 10 to the 11th. Does that make sense? Okay. And so they brought that out, rounded up to 1 times 10 to the 11th. You divide that out, so you get now 1 times 10 to the 17th. That means that 1 in 100 quadrillion people could fulfill that. So the, pro- the, the probability that you, okay, being one person who ever lived on this earth, that you could have fulfilled those eight prophecies was 1 in 100 quadrillion. Do you get it? How many people did we say that, that they estimate to live on the earth? 88 billion. So if it's one in 100 quadrillion, okay, I mean, you get it? We got the hundreds, thousands, millions, billions, okay? So right in here is the number of people who have lived. The factor is just phenomenally out there. Now, that is just eight. Now, we've already gone over 11 one of which was one here. So if you add in, then these others, I mean, virgin birth by itself kind of messes everything up, right? But imagine then, Jesus Christ coming, and his coming to the earth, and the magnitude of what it is. Do you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about um, Christ's ascension, and we talked about, and you will be witnesses, and we talked about at the resurrection the week before that, and we talked about that there were 600 witnesses. And in the court of law, if you had 600 witnesses that came and presented that, I mean, the person would be guilty. Huh? Be unanimous. Well, it would be massive anyway. And the person would be found guilty. There's no way they could get out of it. Statistically speaking, if you presented this statistic to somebody, they would have to accept the fact, the claim of the individual. And it's amazing to me in this world today how they still reject it. It is absolutely infeasible that the prophecies that were given could have been fulfilled 
distinctly in one individual. So as we light the first candle of the Advent season, it is the, the candle reflecting the prophecies of his coming. And as we, we consider this prophecy of his coming, again, the, as we look at this, the, we want to continue to look at it not just from the perspective of his first coming, which is really exciting, and that's brought my redemption. But as Jesus said, and we read this morning in John 14, that he was leaving for a particular purpose, and that was to do what? And then he was going to do what? He was, well, no, but, but he was going to come again. That's exactly right. And so we want to look at that, that second side then of this, the prophecies of his return. Because just as Christ's um, first coming was highly prophesied, so his second coming is highly prophesied as well. And the, you got the picture of the postcard. I love this postcard. It's from years ago, and uh, I was able to find it on the web. I, I love the, the, the picture of the rapture and um, planes flying into buildings and people coming out. Could you imagine the mayhem of the moment when, I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen the Left Behind series or watched the movie, you know, when the, when the rapture happens and, you know, they talk about well, They got their ideas from this postcard. And, um, and this postcard's been out a long time. I mean, think about it. You got the, the, the souls are be coming out of the graves. You got cars that are going to be plummeting. You got uh, planes that are be crashing into the buildings. And, and, and it says that we'll see this as we as we go. Every eye is going to what? Everybody's going to behold him. Everybody's going to see him. This is exciting stuff. Well, let's look at some of these prophecies of Christ's not just coming, but his second coming, his 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 return. First of all, we know that his second coming, not just his first coming, but his second coming was declared by the prophets. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, we read, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Do you know who's talking here? Yahweh is speaking, okay? And you can go check me out. It's Luke chapter 12, okay? But Yahweh is speaking, and Yahweh says, They will look on me, whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. As one grieves for a firstborn. Yahweh, the eternal one, who they understood was the name of God, the creator, states that when he comes back to the house of David, to Jerusalem, they will look on him as one looks upon, as they look upon one whom is pierced, they have pierced. Who was the one who was pierced? Jesus Christ. What an exciting thing. That when he came back, when Yahweh would come to the earth, he would come back as one who was pierced. That has to be Jesus. In Daniel chapter 7, and you can turn and look at that. In Daniel chapter 7, that's where you have the vision of the um, of the, the statue, Nebuchadnezzar's statue, and the gold and the silver and the and the, and the bronze and the, and the iron and the, and the iron and clay mixture. And we're told at the end of the dream that a stone is is hewn from a mountain and it's taken and it's slammed into the, the statue. And what happens to the statue? It's pulverized. Okay, it's not just um, the, you know fallen over or whatever, but it's it's pulverized. And that, that stone then becomes a, a mountain by itself, okay? Well, we're told that when that happens, that one like the Son of Man comes from the ancient of days. What an exciting moment. Daniel, again, you know, people wanted to discredit the book of Daniel because 
Daniel declared prophecies out there, you know, like about the, the, the nation of Greece. Greece wasn't even a nation when Daniel declared that Greece would be the nation that would come and, and take over Medo-Persia. And Greece wasn't even a nation. And so there are a lot of um, experts who like to discredit the book of Daniel until all of a sudden another one of the book of Daniels was found prior that existed prior to what they said it had to be written. And all of a sudden they start to have to accept the fact that Daniel actually what? Prophetically declared these things. Well, I think that God allowed that to happen just exactly that way so the book of Daniel would be substantiated. Do you understand? Because it's not about just the the, the nations of Babylon, Medo-Persia, and even then Greece, but it's about the ancient of days and about the one like the Son of Man who would come, who would pulverize the nations. And we know from the, the book of Genesis from earlier when we when we talked about that the prophecy from Jacob to Judah that he would roll with a iron scepter. Do you understand? And so the testimony of Daniel in his historicity, if you would, of his prophecies also confirms the prophecy of the return of Christ coming again. This is from the Old Testament, from the Old Covenant. Well, then we know that the Messiah himself, Jesus himself declared in John 14, as we read this morning in the, um, the, the Bible reading, he says, you believe in God? Believe also in me. Believe even in me. Why? Later on, he's going to tell Philip. Philip's going to say, show us the Father, and suffices us. And he tells Philip what? Have I been with you all this time, and you haven't? You haven't known me. You haven't recognized me. In other words, Philip, I am the Father. I've been with you. And you haven't realized, he says, if you believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions or dwelling places, literally, okay? Uh, I don't, you know, if it wanted to be a mansion and it has to be a mansion for you, I'm sure God will give you a mansion. But honestly, the picture here is the picture of the bridegroom coming back for his bride. And in the, in the Jewish concept, what would happen is there would be the betrothal period, okay? And then during that betrothal period, the, the groom, the husband, okay, because they would be considered as married, the groom, the husband would go back to his father's place and he would begin to prepare a dwelling place for them. Now, in many, many um, t- places in the time, it would just be another room along the court of the father. Does that make sense? It's not like today. We see some of that today in our culture with somebody who has a lot of land that one of their sons gets married. They give them what? They give them some of the land so they can go build a house on it. Make sense? So it's the same kind of concept. Well, if you, back in those days, you had this house, you would build a, a, just an additional dwelling place on it. And when the room was finished, then you would go back to get your bride, and you would bring your bride back, and there would be this big festivity in, in the uh, court, if you would, of the father. Okay? And so that's the picture that's there. So if it's a mansion, if it's like in the United States where you get a piece of the land and there's a big house built upon it, that's pretty cool. If it's, honestly, if it's a room right off a of dad's room, I'm very good with that because that means I get to be what? I get to be closer to dad. And so, um, so I'm good with that too. It says, so in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have what? I would have told you. This is huge. What's Jesus declaring here? I'm telling the truth. If... If there was no promise of eternal life, if there was no promise of living with the Father eternally, 
I would have what? I'd have been straight up without that. But there is. In fact, so much is there that I personally am going to go back and do what? Prepare the place for you. And when I'm done preparing that place, I'm going to do what? I'm going to come again and I'm going to receive you personally. I'm going to come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. This isn't just a prophetic thing from the Old Testament, but this is the Lord himself declaring that he was going to come back. And he's going to come back with a a purpose, a glorious purpose. What was his first coming about? all about? Salvation. Redeeming us. The redemption. What's the second coming all about? The reception. reception. You got the redemption, you got the reception. It's a glorious thing. And then we know in the book of Revelation that there's going to be this this great um, wedding feast that goes on. And and Jesus is going to sit there, and those who are here are going to be around the table. And it's going to be this glorious time of, of worshiping the one true God, the great I Am. I look forward to that to that time. Well, um, Jesus also declared in Matthew 24, let's turn with me there, in Matthew 24, that there was going to come a time as well, that he was going to return with his saints with him. In Matthew 24, Jesus is, is giving discussion of the, of the end times in Matthew 24 and 25. In Matthew 24, beginning verse 29, we read, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. We read about that. Just before what? The bulls of God's wrath are poured out. Now, I think there's going to be the rapture in Romans and Revelation 10, because I think the church is going to be gone prior to Israel um, being worked through again. But very clearly, what Jesus is talking about here, okay, is when that trumpet is sounded, and the angels come down, and they reap the earth. You can read about that. I think it's Revelation 12 is where it's at. It might be 14 or 15. Anyways, but you can read about that just at the, just when the, the bulls of God's wrath are being, it, being poured out. But know what's interesting about it. It says that every what? Who's going to know? Every person, every, every tribe, every nation will know what's happening. And when God's wrath is poured out upon this, on this earth, the people will be what? Mourning. They will know. It's an awful time. When Christ comes back, he's going to come back with power. And he's going to come back for for us as well. Well, we read this as well, um, declared by the angels, which we we saw when we looked in Acts chapter 1. Because in Acts chapter 1, we read that while the the apostles looked steadily 
steadfastly toward heaven. As he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Why are you gawking? Could you imagine what it would have been like if you were one of the apostles that day? Yeah, why? I mean, when's the last time you were, again, you know, I mentioned this before, but when's the last time you were standing there talking to somebody and they just kind of started levitating and going higher and higher and higher and they passed through the heavens? You know, they didn't, the body didn't blow up because of the pressurization or anything, you know, just kind of, they just kept going up. And so the angels come, and that's a marvelous thing too. When's the last time you had two angels come and talk to you? And the angels come and they said to you, men of Galilee, why do you stand gawking? Why are you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into the heavens. And so as Jesus is ascending, the prophets have already said that he's going to come back. Jesus said, listen, if I go, I'm going to come back. And now the angels say when he's ascending, just like you saw him going, he's going to, he's going to come back. He's going to come back. And so I ask you, as we move on then to the apostles, do you really believe that Jesus is going to come back? Oh, see, it works twice now. Declared by the apostles. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. To see some more of this information. Now, over these next couple of weeks, as we look at the return of Christ, we're going to be looking at the, the, the climate of his return, the timing of his return, and such like that. Um, and so there's going to be certain things in here that you're going to hear multiple times over the, the next couple of weeks, but I'm trying to, to not do it all in one week and be here for three hours. Um, but in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 13, we, we read, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. That means those who are what? Dead. Okay? Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep or have died in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, I think it's by the word of Yahweh, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, who are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, I want to ask you a question, quick, quick question first before we look at that, just briefly. How many of the people that Paul was talking to saw the rapture of the Lord? None of them. Paul said, and we who are alive will meet them in the air. Paul was including what? Himself in it. But we know that Paul died by the hands of Rome, in, in, um, in Rome itself. And so none of those people who were alive right then actually saw it. Paul was giving a statement, though, a testimony to believers. And the fact is that what? Whoever, whenever Christ comes, because no man knows the what? Day or the hour. When Christ returns, here's the encouragement. Those who are alive at that moment... They will be what? They will be raptured. They will be harpazo. They will be caught up to meet him in the air. However, the dull, the dull part of the encouragement here is, if you die before that, don't worry about it. Because you guys actually will get to precede us who are alive there. 
that's a pretty cool thing. And what a great, um, years ago, I got to minister at the Bonaire every Wednesday. And the, uh, for those who don't know what the Bonaire was, it's the it's a big, it used to be a hotel on the hill. Um, President Eisenhower stayed there when he came in back in the, um, into town and stuff like that. And it was a really posh place. Well, over time, it became less posh, and it became a senior citizen's high-rise. And so every Wednesday morning, I could get to go teach in the chapel there. It was a glorious time. And to all these older saints, and you understand, I was in my 30s, um, and then younger 40s, but probably it was my 30s that I was there. And these people were in their 80s, you know. And I got to hear stories of God's working in their life over those many, many years. I mean, I wasn't even a gleam in, in my grandma and grandpa's eyes, probably, when they were around my age. You know what I'm saying? And so, and so it was really just a joy to hear those things. But one of the greatest joys was to hear how ready they were to go home. They were looking forward. Now, it would be nice if Jesus came in their days, but you know what? They'd gotten past the, 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 the moment where they were really looking for Christ to, to spare them from the pangs of death. They were just looking forward even to the, the threshold crossing the threshold that they could be with their Lord. They were yearning for home. Are you yearning? And now, you know, honestly, I look around and none of you are there, okay, at that point where the, some of you are getting there. Anyways, no, but that, you know, you're not closing on your 80s right now, okay? So you're not, you know, you're not your 90s. You're not looking, man, I just, I just want to be out of this body, you know, some of you are getting to the grandparent age. Some of you are in the kid's age, you know, and you're enjoying life and you, and you want to enjoy it. Some of you are looking forward to maybe getting married one day and having your own kids and da-da-da-da. And so here's the, here's the question. What do you want more? Do you, are you looking forward to Jesus' return more than you are to the joys of this life? Now, now understand, there's nothing wrong with the joys of this life. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, my guys, my kids grow up. You know, you know, I know that when Anna graduates, I'm going to be retirement age and, um, I'll be 65 on social security. And, um, but, um, but I'm looking forward to Jesus coming back. And Paul says, thinking about his return should be a what? What's he telling me at the very end? Verse 18. Comfort. It's a comfort. Comfort one another with these words. Why? Why would it be a comfort? Because this, this isn't all there is. Think context now. Okay, remember I asked about how many of these people actually got to experience this. You know, they all died. So, who's Paul talking to? Believers in Thessalonica. Okay, so we, we I helped you out with that one. So, where's Thessalonica? Not now, but back then. Okay, but even more specifically, I mean, you're giving me the actual uh, geological location, but it's part geographical. Yeah, what's it a part of? Say again. It's part of Rome. Yeah, it's part of Rome. It's part of Nero's dominion. Okay, um, in different in, in different uh, Caesars at that at that point, but it's all part of Rome's dominion, right? So, what do we know about Christians in the Roman Empire? <laughs> they didn't have a long life expectancy. Right. 
they were they were continually being what persecuted, and so Paul says, "Looky, when you when you are looking at this world and things aren't going right, then what? Remember, this isn't all it is. Jesus is coming back. So for us today, it's a struggle because what? We're not facing what persecution in this land. But you go over to Indonesia, you go over to China." You go over to Saudi Arabia, you go over to Egypt, you go over to Sudan, you go over to places where it's not okay to be a Christian. And guess what? The return of Christ is a real comforting thing. They pray for us over here because of the affluence of our country and and because we get distracted from that which is really important. Christ's return is that which is really important. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. And again, we're going to talk this passage a little bit more in the next week or two. Um, But in 2 Peter 3, beginning of verse 1, it says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of a reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the what? Last days. Walking according to their own lusts, their own desires, their own burning desires, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to be in creation. That just means that, you know, from the, from the beginning. Okay? And so, think about what they're saying. Paul, Peter's saying, you know, I'm, I'm writing to you to, to stir up your minds, okay, about the things that are important, about the commandments of Christ and, and that kind of stuff, and the things that the prophets have written about as well. And then what does he get into? What's the very first thing he gets into? The return of Christ. He says that in those last days, that there's going to be what? There's going to be scoffers. And what is the thing that the scoffers are going to start mocking us about? Yeah, where's Christ? And, and, you know, and I think it's the Herald Campings, not to pick on people, picking the days which will fuel the fire, if if you would, of the scoffers and mockers. I mean, if you go on the web and, and Google the return of Christ, and do, do the images search and stuff like that, okay? Do you know one of the, the greatest images you're going to find prevalently up there? Not Harold Camping himself, but yes, his picture comes up quite frequently too. But a lot of the billboards of May 21st, 2010. Because that was what? The end of the world. Yeah, which is one of the end there was. It was. It must have been someplace. Anyways, um, the world is resilient. Um, but you know what? We pick on him because we live in this day where the, we can put all this stuff up. But continually, people have been picking days. Jack Van Impey was a, was a man who was called the Walking Bible. I mean, people talk about how much mem- memory work I've done, but my memory work is nothing compared to many other people. Jack Van Impey had so much of the Word of God memorized, but he fell into the the date setting stuff, you know, back of the, the the Y2K stuff, the millennium, turning of the millennium, and he and he said that Jesus was coming back in Y2K. I mean, there were there was a, t- a church in town um, over there 
off of Old Bel Air Road, like if you, um, it's not there anymore, but if you're, you're coming over from the fort and you come across I-20 and you're on Bel Air Road and you turn left onto Old Bel Air and you go to where the, um, uh, what's the, the charismatic church right there? Uh, anyways, the worship center there on the left. And then you go a little further and the, and the road banks back to the right and there's a church back there on Old Bel Air Road. Well, it's not the same church because the church that was there sold everything. And as a group, they moved to Montana because Christ was coming again. So they sold everything, and they moved out into the wilderness because Jesus was coming back. I remember back then, people had a, a heyday with Christians because it was Christians, for the most part, that were looking at Armageddon happening. They were looking at the, the return of Christ. We've got to be careful. We're going to be looking into the, the, the timing of his return coming up. But what are the, you can all quote to me the passage from Matthew 24. What did Jesus say about the timing of his return? Yeah, not even I. No man knows the day or the hour. Why do we have people continually what? Pick the days and the hours. They continually tick the time. We're supposed to be found working. We talked about last week. Found working. We're supposed to be found working. And so, are you? Are you looking forward to his return? Well, we know that it's going to be such a big deal, though, and, and it's okay that we're going to be teaching about it and we're going to be talking about it such that even the world's going to be what? Focused on it as well. And they're going to be saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were. Verse 5, for this they willfully forget. This they what? Willfully forget. God says so through Peter. They willfully forget this, that by the word of God the heavens were and the earth standing out of the water, in the, uh, and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. So what do they willfully reject? They willfully reject that God's, God, God breathed the heavens and the earth into existence, and that they willfully reject that God also judged the earth with a flood. Jesus says that it's going to be just like it was in the days of Noah. We'll talk about that when we come to the climate. Peter talks then about this, this return of Christ. And we continue on down in verse 8. He says, But beloved, do not forget this, that one, this one thing, that the Lord one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Peter declares that Christ is coming again. John, 1 John 3, um, we've been memorizing 1 John. John very clearly de- declares that Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, he will take us up to be with him. And when he does so, we will be like him because we will what? See him as he is. Statistically, Christ's first coming was extremely improbable. Does that make sense? It, it just statistically doesn't make sense. But it what? But it happened. The world is going to mock, and they're going to statistically, if you would, be mocking us. Oh, where is, come on, where is, you guys keep putting out the what? The dates, and what? Nothing happens. Do you know why the Jehovah Witnesses are false prophets? 
but for many reasons, I know. But one very particularly that you can give them, they declared that Jesus was coming back in 1914. They still maintain that he did. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's another thing. I may have it wrong, maybe 1918, but it was in the, between 10 and 20, okay? Anyways, that, that Jesus was coming, and, and because they don't want to declare themselves to be a false prophet, they have to maintain that he did. And so they had to change, kind of like the amillennialists who, who say that Jesus did come back, but he came back in the clouds of the hoofbeats of the Roman army. I'd almost want to be a Jehovah Witness and believe that he came in 1914 more than I want to believe that he came back in the, the clouds of the hoofbeat for the Roman armies. Anyways, but the point is, you have to, if you want to believe that, that Jesus has already come back, you have to do what? You have to change and twist and allegorize and figurativize. I made up that word in Sunday school and I told people that you, you wouldn't like that too much. But anyways, but you got to figurativize whatever Jesus said because he couldn't amend it what? Literally. So if we say all that, then what about us? What is going into this Christmas season? What's our primary focus? Is it meditating on the incarnation and redemption of Christ? But if, and this is where I want to go, if we are fully convinced of Christ's return, how is it affecting your life today? Do you really honestly believe that before we celebrate the first coming of Christ, you could be rejoicing in the second coming of Christ? Wouldn't that be awesome? I remember years ago, um, it was a year after I got saved. I was saved in the fall of 84, and this was in December 1985. And um, I didn't take my, my leave from the military. You know, you always take leave at um, holidays and stuff like that. But we weren't going anyplace because... Marsha was great with my oldest child, and um, who was due on December 9th, but, you know, being, the, being a woman, no, sorry, get myself in trouble. Anyways, <laughs> anyways, she was not here yet. And so I thought going into that, what statistically, again, I'm a math guy, right? Statistically, what's the probability of me pulling duty during the holiday? Well, for me, it was 100%. Anyways, I had duty on Christmas Day. I mean, talking about the days they get, I have Christmas Day duty. And Jessica was born the day after Christmas, so that worked really well. You know, that would really been a bummer if she was born on Christmas Day and I had duty. But I remember that night, and because um, I would go when I was off for the day, I wouldn't sleep. You know, I would stay up with those guys. You know, I just felt like I was the And they said, no, you're supposed to go to sleep, sir. And I said, no, I'm, I'm responsible. I'm here. You guys are staying up. I'm staying up with you. And and so I would ride in the vans, and the, the, the guards really hated that, too, because... The officer was riding in the vans and picking them up. They better be awake on, on, their, on, their, on their job. Anyways, but I would ride with them in the van, and we'd go out in Range Road. And some of you guys have been out there. You understand Range Road. There's just nothing out there, right? And I remember seeing this bright star. I mean, the night was so clear. And, and I mean, I'm just so recently saved, man. I'm still living in the joy of my salvation. I've been saved for a year. And, and this is really my... My second maybe saved Christmas, but my first really saved Christmas. The first one that I'm really focusing and pumped on what it's really all about. And I look up and I see this star shining in the east. I didn't have no idea, but I knew it was the east. And, um, and, and, I'm, and I'm looking up, and, and what do I start thinking of? The return of Christ, man. And I'm thinking, what an awesome time, Jesus, for you to come back. You know. Now, honestly, I could have been thinking about what? My baby, I'm getting ready to have my first baby. You know, I mean, 
But you know, when you start thinking about the return of Christ, everything else pales in comparison to it. I mean, there's nothing that you can experience on this earth that will ever compare to being in his presence. And if that's the case, then I ask myself, here I am, that was 1985. So that was what? Many, many moons ago, 26 years ago. What changes have had in my life in 26 years? How is my life different today than it was even 26 years ago? I mean, that's, this is a kicker for me. Because, you know, I can't, I'm not one of these young believers now who can look at some of these guys who have been saved for 10,000 years. I'm the guy who's been saved 10,000 years, you know? And some of you are too. What effect does the return of Christ have upon your life today? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you for the promise of your return. And Lord, that promise didn't come out of no place. But Lord, it has been a part of your plan from before you laid the foundations of the world. Before you ever breathed into man the breath of life, you knew that you would come to be the redemptive sacrifice and that you would come again to reign on the earth. That every eye would see you and seeing you, they would, they would recognize you as the one whom they had pierced. And in their rejection, they would mourn. But Lord, clearly, being one who understands and confesses it, it acknowledges it and looks forward to it, I have to confess, Lord, that I don't always live in light of it. And I allow myself to be distracted by the things of this world. And by the things of my own lusts, that of the flesh, of my eyes, and of my pride. Lord, I pray that you would help each of us as we look into this time of Advent, the time of considering your coming to the earth, to take stock of those things which we are stocking up in whether we are laying up treasures in heaven or treasures on earth, whether we are seeking your kingdom or our own, whether we are more citizens of this earth or citizens of heaven. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people being called by your name who are turning away from their wickedness, seeking your face and your glory and that you would receive the glory in us. In Jesus' name, amen.